They're all things that we do that are innovative to, I don't want to say keep it exciting, but to be unique, to move the needle forward, whether that's even an awareness perspective, which again, the more awareness we have, the more funds we raise and the more research we fund, right? So it's really just all an effort to make everyone feel like they're a part of this family. Because unfortunately, it's like, you know, you don't choose your parents. Unfortunately, glioblastoma, you don't choose that family either. But we're all here. It's not ideal for anyone, but we're all here together. And the way you get through these things is by being together with support. Welcome to Glioblastoma, a.k.a. GBM, a podcast brought to you by the Glioblastoma Research Organization, highlighting stories with GBM warriors, caregivers, medical advisors, and more. Join us this season as we connect with members of our incredible community and have meaningful and insightful chats regarding all things glioblastoma. Please note that any information provided on this show is not meant to treat, diagnose, or prevent any disease, and all information that is discussed in our conversation is what worked for the individual themselves and should not be taken as advice. The information provided in the show is not a substitute for professional medical advice, and you should contact your medical provider and healthcare team with any questions. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the season finale of season one of glioblastoma, aka GBM. I'm your host, Amber Barbeck, and I want to say thank you to every single person that's listened to the show throughout this season, that's followed along the journey, and that is listening to this episode right now. I want to apologize. I know it's taken absolutely forever for me to get this final episode out. I feel like I've sat down 100 times to do it and something's always come up, whether that's me having gotten sick and losing my voice for weeks at a time. Also me just being really nervous to record it. But I want to say thank you to everyone that's listened to all the other episodes and that's just been following along and staying along and being a part of the community that we built. It's funny because I feel like I've sat down with a lot of different friends and people through I've met throughout the organization. And we've talked about the final episode. And I've said like, oh, I have to record this episode. Like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. Because I'm always used to interviewing someone. And so I feel like it's funny because I used to be on like the morning announcements in school and I used to get detention for talking. And and I feel like now when it's actually my time to talk, I, I don't really know what to say. Again, in these conversations with people that I've spoken to over the last few weeks, it's been a repetition of me saying, I expect everyone to share their stories with me and the organization. And everyone is so vulnerable in sharing their stories with the world. I can't expect people to do that through the platform that I've built if I can't do it myself, which I think why it's been so difficult for me to sit down. But here we are, and we're very excited. Welcome to the party. We say I'm a lot. I'm just kidding. So I wanted to talk about a bit about my background, what I wanted to build for the organization and sort of give everyone just a deeper understanding of who I am, why I built the nonprofit, what my vision was for it, and sort of everything in between. So I do just want to say before we go ahead and get started is that I'm sharing everything from my perspective. Obviously, I lost my father to brain cancer, but everything I share some of it may be graphic, some of it may be hard to hear. I think it's really important to share with everyone just because 
it's important to fully understand my story and everything that's led me to create the nonprofit. So there may be some trigger warnings about death, disease progression, anxiety, you name it. So if I think if this may be a good point to stop listening, if any of that does not sound like something that you're interested in listening to in this episode, there is also talk about different experiences that I've had. And again, it's all from a non-patient perspective. So I don't want to discourage anyone. I just want to share what I went through, what my father went through and just tell it like it was for me. So a little bit about when I first found out that my dad had brain cancer. Actually, I think we should go back to even before that. My dad and I are the exact same person, same exact personality, same exact mannerisms, very stubborn and strong-willed, ambitious, and very, I'd say, eclectic per se, which I think is a very cool way to describe someone. And him and I didn't really get along for a good portion of my life. We were always arguing because we were like the exact same person and we were both just like butting heads. And I found that when I lived at home, we were just did not get along. And as soon as I left, everything was great. Kept each other like at an arm's length distance. And we were always there for each other, which I think was really great. But a lot of my life was spent arguing, to be honest. I was grounded a lot as a kid. We didn't have the best relationship. I was always being punished for every single thing that I was doing. But I still always looked at my dad as someone that was going to solve all my problems. He was there whenever I needed help. Amber, in like seventh grade, I had some really weird stomach sickness where I had to leave school every day for like three months. And every single day he came to pick me up. And so he was always there when I needed him. And I think that was a lot of the foundation of our relationship was that he was always the person that would be there for me no matter what, no matter what happened. And so as I got older and I moved out, I went to college, we started becoming closer, which I think was nice. But it wasn't like we had this picture perfect relationship. And I think sometimes when I say I started this nonprofit in honor of my father, a lot of people tend to romanticize the idea that everything was so great before, but it wasn't, unfortunately. And looking back now, I do recognize that nothing was perfect, but that's also life, right? But we had a great relationship at the end of the day. And I think I guess more so than that is we had a really great foundation for a relationship, which is why I ended up starting the nonprofit to honor him because he did teach me so many things and made me the person that I am today that I wanted to honor him in a way that I felt was special and impactful. Leading up to his diagnosis, I was early 20s. And I remember I was going to leave to Spain to teach English to little kids because I had been working my entire college career. I had been working all through high school and I felt like I never had time to just be a kid, to travel, to enjoy myself and to do some kind of study abroad. So I got a really great opportunity to work for the government of Spain where I would be teaching English to little kids. And so, you know, I was planning for that. I was preparing to leave on this journey and he had asked The day before that I left, he said, I have to go get an MRI for something. And I was like, he's like, can you drive me? And I was like, yeah, sure. Like, that's that's fine. He was a chiropractor. He did functional neurology. So I wasn't thinking anything of him wanting to get an MRI. But I also wasn't really aware of what an MRI was. I was this naive 21-year-old that didn't really understand anything about medical terminology. And so it was the last thing in my mind that it's like, oh, yeah. 
he has an appointment, I'll take him. Like, great. So I take him. We go back home. And the next day, I end up leaving to Spain. And turns out that was the day that he found out that he had a brain tumor. But keep in mind, I didn't know any of this until months, months down the road. So him and my mom knew that he had a brain tumor the entire time that I was in Spain. And I had just been partying. I had been traveling, teaching, going to different countries. I was living my absolute best life while my dad was dying from brain cancer. And I had no idea. And that's something that I do feel really badly about to this day. But again, like if my parents would have told me, I would have come home. So they were extremely, extremely selfless in that process of wanting to give me the opportunity to experience all of this, which of course I'm thankful for. But I just always am wondering, what would it be like if I would have found out? Like what would happen? I would have had more time with my dad. And so that's a narrative that I deal with constantly in my head. But during the time, as soon as he found out, from what I've been told, of course, you know, I would love to have brought my mother on this episode, but it is 1118 at night and she is fast asleep. But in that time that before I found out, so let's say this is middle of September to November or October, my dad didn't do anything. He didn't do treatment. I believe he probably talked to some of his natural doctor friends that were also chiropractors and was maybe trying to find different solutions, but he was very quiet about what was going on. I don't think my mother actually really knew what his diagnosis was. And he kept it very private because I don't think he wanted to face that's what he was dealing with. And so I know that he spent a lot of this time by himself. He stopped FaceTiming me a lot. We started talking a little bit less because I think that the tumor started to grow and it started to affect his motor skills and his abilities. But he was overall, he was still doing okay. But again, if you don't treat a tumor, it's going to keep growing and it'll start affecting something eventually. And so I think he ended up doing radiation or he did gamma knife in November of that. It was November 2017. And then at this point, my mom was like, you have to do something because I think it just got to a point where he just wasn't doing great. But he still wouldn't operate because I know he was absolutely terrified to have brain surgery, especially since he had to be awake during the surgery. And I think that was just a nightmare for him. Just a little bit about my dad as well is that my grandmother passed away from Alzheimer's when I was, I want to say eight or nine years old. And so that was a really big life change for him where from the day that she passed, he spent everything and everything he did in his life was to prevent getting a brain disease. Like I want to make that so clear is that it's just still the craziest thing that my dad passed away from a brain tumor because he spent his entire existence after that working to not get anything brain related. He ate this incredibly healthy diet, was constantly being active, was doing all of these like brain activities and taking supplements and anything you name it. He did everything in his power to just avoid any brain issue. And so that's why he was just, I think, so upset and confused and shocked by this entire diagnosis because it was just so random and it was his absolute worst nightmare. After he got the radiation, I think one day him and my mom were driving and he just started like veering off the road and she grabbed the wheel and she was like, you need to go see your doctor and, and schedule your surgery. And he, I think he kept avoiding and putting it off. He's like, the doctor's out of town. The doctor is this, the doctor is that. And he just did not want to get surgery. And I think it got to a point where she ended up having to call the doctor and schedule surgery for him. And so this, you know, is now January and he still hasn't really done anything for this brain tumor. He ended up 
getting brain surgery on, I want to say January 20th, 2018. And my mom called me on the 21st. And of course, if you've listened to me speak before, if you've read a little bit about the nonprofit, you sort of know where this goes at this point. But she called me and she was like, your dad just had brain surgery for a brain tumor. And I was like, what do you mean a brain tumor? Again, I was as shocked as he probably was when he first found out. I had no idea what to do. So I was, again, I was in Madrid and I flew home overnight. I packed all my things. I texted my roommates who happened to be out of town. I was like, hey guys, like I got to go. And they're like, what do you mean? I was like, yeah, my dad has cancer. Like, peace out. Like we're leaving. And so obviously moving across the country was difficult, but that was actually the worst flight of my entire life. I remember just sitting there sobbing for the nine hours that it took. I found a direct flight. I used my entire savings because I didn't have money at that time. I used my entire savings, drained everything on like the next flight out, which was like eight o'clock the next day. A friend of mine, which was the sweetest, she had like slept over and stayed with me for that night. But it was like, I was so upset. I had to go back home, but I was also like, I have to go home because my dad is there. And I just remember being like, it was a huge shock to the system. And it's still, you know, crazy to think about to this day. But I got home and I had a friend pick me up at the airport and he had driven me home and I lived in a building. And I remember I was like, hey, can you just like go around the block? And then he's like, okay. (laughs) And again, I'm just like forcing my friend to just continue driving. And I think we circled that block like a solid 20 times. I was just like, oh, yeah, make a turn here. Like, that's just, I don't want to go home. And I remember I was just terrified to go home because I would have had to face the reality that my dad had brain surgery. And it was awful. And just the idea of having to go home was horrible. And I didn't know what to expect. And I was scared and I was sad and I was just confused. And I knew that I didn't want to cry because I didn't want to upset him. And I had to be this like strong person. But I know I didn't have to be that strong person, but I wanted to be this strong person. And so I was like preparing a joke that I would say when I walked in the door. And so I finally go upstairs and I see my dad half lying on the bed. And just also to note, like, I'm not going to call them out because I have this platform now, but the hospital that he was treated at sent him home two days after brain surgery. Like that was the absolute worst idea anyone has ever had in the history of anything. This man could not take care of himself. Like he was so incapable to be home. We ended up having to call an ambulance to get him back to the hospital the next day. But I'll get into that in a second. But I see my dad, like my mom couldn't even get him on the bed. Like it just is so mind blowing to me how they sent him home. So maybe for anyone's listening, if your loved one, if someone that you know has a brain surgery, maybe make sure they have a doctor properly sign off on their discharge because it was just, absolute nightmare to get him back there to proper care, which he shouldn't have been taken away from so soon. And so I got back home and I walked into his room and I was like, what did you do? (laughs) And he's like, confused for a second. I was like, look at this mess you've gotten yourself into. And he started laughing and he's like, I don't know. I think he was just like laughing or he like chuckled and like saw that I was like trying not to cry. And then I went out of the room and I just like started crying, but I knew that I couldn't really cry because I know he would hear me. So I was like, kind of like crying, like soft crying where you don't want anyone to hear you. And you're just like, absolutely sad. Like, and I had to get it together. So I walked back into the room. I helped like lift my dad who was 180 pounds onto a bed with my mom. And I'm like a tiny 
a hundred something pound girl, like lifting my dad was nearly impossible. My mom is even tinier and smaller than I am. It was challenging for sure. And I remember I was like sleeping in the living room because we had given him my room. And so the next day we had woken up and we had to call an ambulance service, but the actual ambulance wouldn't take him back because there wasn't an emergency. So we had to hire this private ambulance service to bring him back to the hospital, which then admitted him again through the emergency room. They put him through another MRI. They're like, yeah, he had a brain tumor. I was like, yeah, no shit. (laughs) Like, thanks guys. Like, that's why we're here. And so he was admitted and he was back into a hospital where he stayed, I believe, for five or six days. And they began doing PT with him. It was just, it was crazy because I remember I wouldn't leave the hospital. Like my mom and I would, you know, take rotations, but like I just couldn't leave. Like at this point, I didn't know what to do with myself. And I had all these doctors coming in and like, you know, we have the oncology team, you have the neuro-oncology team, you have the neurosurgeon, you have the neurologist, and everyone's just coming in and like, rotations and like saying things to you. And you're just here like, my parent just had surgery for brain cancer. Like nothing anyone says in that moment processes you. They're explaining like medical terminology and treatment options and name of chemo and like Temodar and Avast. And I'm just like, what is any of this? Like there's no time to process anything. And I think that's the really hard part about a brain tumor diagnosis is that everything is so fast. And I don't really know how it works for other cancers, which, you know, knock on what I'm thankful for. But it's all so fast and there is zero time to process literally anything. And you're spending the entire time not only trying to wrap your head around someone that you love that has cancer, but also now trying to think about how do I find a solution? And I'm like the most solution-oriented person. Like I need answers. I like to do my due diligence. I'm very detail-oriented. And I was just like, I didn't even have time to be sad. I was like, okay, so we've got to do this. And I'm getting this doctor's number and this person. And I have my family members calling me. And like, my mom didn't really want to speak to anyone. And so I had to do it, which I was stressed out about. And I've talked to my mom about this. So no one come after my mom. I love her. She's great. But it's hard. You're 21, 22 years old. And you're having to spearhead your parents' brain surgery experience. You know, like I had family members calling me like, how is your dad? And then, you know, you hang up on the phone after explaining this whole thing. And then you, someone else calls and you have to explain it. It's like a broken record. And it's exhausting because again, you still have zero time to process anything yourself. And so I remember it just being super stressful, super overwhelming. But then during that time, he had started PT in the hospital, like PT and OT. And I remember he couldn't really walk. And so Again, this is the man that was absolutely the most stubborn person ever. He didn't like waiting for people to do things. And they were like, hey, you know, if you have to go to the bathroom, like press the little buzzer on the the remote control and we'll come help you. And I remember he was like, no, I'm not going to call these people. I can do it myself. And I'm like, dad, like you, you should do it. You know, like, let's like listen to the nurses. He's like, no, 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 I'm fine. And I'm like, I don't like the idea of this, but like, okay, because, you know, my six-year-old dad's not going to listen to what I'm going to say. And so he decides to walk to the bathroom. We might have had a walker. So I'm like, you know, helping him. Again, I'm 110 pounds and he's 180. And so I help carry him to the bathroom. I like close the door. He does whatever he has to do. And he calls me in. He's like, hey, I need help. And I'm like, what do you mean you need help? He's like, I can't get up. And I'm like, I literally told you this was going to happen. So then, you know, I walk over there, I put his arm around my neck, like, you know, you're carrying like a drunk person back from a club. And 
I had his full body weight on me. And I feel like my adrenaline just spiked so hard. Like I'm trying to hold my dad who's 70 pounds heavier than me. I remember I was like panicking. I was like, dad, I can't do this. I can't do this. And he's like, I need your help. And I'm like, dad, I literally cannot. And I started crying. I was like, I can't carry you. I can't carry you. It was just awful because he was like stuck and I couldn't do anything. And for me, for someone that like is a problem solver, like I couldn't solve this problem. I remember that being so incredibly difficult because there's nothing that I could have done. So I think he ended up just like sitting on the toilet till we got like a nurse. And then he like bitched my dad out. He was like, what are you doing? We told you my dad's like, yeah, sorry, like whatever. Looking back, it was kind of funny. He was a super stubborn person, but it was really stressful. And I remember like I threw out my back and I was in so much pain. And again, I'm just like thinking of the highlights that I feel like were most impactful. Obviously every day had its own challenges, but I'm just thinking of like, I think the most important things to share just because I think it does encompass more of the story that I've shared before. But we had gone home and I remember, you know, a couple of days later, he was using a walker, but he wasn't really confident. And we're like, okay, dad, if you have to go to the bathroom, like, please use the walker. And there was a bathroom in the bedroom he was staying, which is why he needed to put him there so it was easy access. And so we're like, even if it's like a couple feet, like, please use the walker. And so this guy <laughs> decides to not use the walker. Again, we love a stubborn guy, right? And so he walks to the bathroom and I'm in the other room. And this was maybe a couple of days after he had been discharged from that second time in the hospital. And I hear the loudest thud. And I was like, Jesus Christ, what just happened? And so I walked to the bathroom and the doors closed. And I was like, dad, and he just didn't answer. I was like, oh my God, I thought he was dead. I was like, dad, just doesn't answer. I'm like, dad, like dad, doesn't answer me. I opened the door. I was like, you know, God forbid I see my parent lying lifeless on the ground. And he's like sprawled out on the floor. There's blood by his head. And he like looks like, you know, when they have those movies where they tape someone like on the ground where like they show like where a dead person is. Like he was just sprawled out like that. And I was like, like, what the fuck? He's like, help me up. And I'm like, like, I'm calling an ambulance. Like I'm calling 911. And I've never called 911 before. And I'm here like crying. Like my dad just fell. Like he had a brain tumor. And I'm just trying to explain all these things to people. And he's just on the ground. And like looking back now, that was one of the worst sights I've ever seen and the worst feeling. It was so terrifying. And just, oh my God, honestly, it was so bad. And so they sent him to the hospital. And we had like a couple day old puppy at that point, which I had gotten him to make him feel better and to, you know, give my mom and I a companion because the house was just filled with so much sadness and we needed life. And so I had to like bring this poor little puppy. She was the best though. She did so well. She was just like hanging out with us in the ER and like all the doctors were playing with her and she was like playing with denture cups and was like, you know, she was the light of everyone's life that day. And so, you know, there was no stitches needed. He was totally fine, but they had to do another MRI to make sure there was no brain bleeding. And I think he ended up being fine. So they sent him home eventually. And we're like, okay, well, now we're gluing the walker to your hands, which we weren't, but we were really adamant about like, you know, not being able to do that. Fast forward another couple days, he was like sitting at the edge of the bed trying to get to the walker and he slid off the bed. I was like, dad, <laughs> you got one job. <laughs> and I remember... I guess he broke his finger and the way he fell down. He's like, quick, take off my wedding ring because like his finger was swelling. And I was like, oh my God. So we had to get oil. And it was, that was a stressful thing in itself. And I guess fast forward a little bit more. 
at this point, I don't really know what month we are, what week it is, what's going on. But towards, I'd say, end of March, he stopped being able to walk. He was in bed all the time. We had to hire a private nurse. There are people coming in every day, twice a day. They were bathing him, just sitting with him. He really wasn't doing much. He had this like floor lamp that was next to his bed. And I remember at night, I got so upset with him and it wasn't fair for me to get upset with my dad who had brain cancer. But like as a caregiver, it is so hard. It is so challenging, especially when you have to be on all the time and you're not only taking care of someone, but you're worrying about yourself and you're trying to stay healthy and you're trying to get sleep and your cortisol levels spike when you're stressed out. It's a very stressful experience overall that I think I still haven't really gone through and thought about because you kind of just operate on this wavelength. Like I have to just get shit done. Like I can't really do much else. Like There's no processing. There's getting stuff done and trying to get by is really what it is. At least that's what my experience is. We'll be right back in just a moment. And now back to the conversation. I remember at night, he would just flicker this light. And I got so pissed off because like, I'm a very, very light sleeper. And I see this like rave light going off in the bedroom because the door was frosted glass. And that was like, sort of like his Morse code of being like calling me over. And I'd be like, yes, dad. He's like, can I have some watermelon? I'm like, it's two o'clock in the morning. He's like, yeah, I'm hungry. And so that was a little funny story. But as it continued, you know, he stopped being able to walk. He stopped eating. And one of his neighbors where he had his office would drop by off smoothies every day. And that was really thankful. I don't remember her name, but if she's hearing this, thank you for all the smoothies. I think she bought smoothies for about a week. And that was really his entire nutritional intake is that he was just drinking smoothies a couple times a day. And then it got to a point where he just stopped drinking smoothies and was only drinking water. And at that point, I had a trip. I was going to go to New York for a couple of days for the holiday. It was for Passover. And so we ended up putting him into hospice. My mom and I had gone to the hospice center and we're like, hey, you know, we explained the whole situation. We want to put him on hospice. We want to put him in a place where he's comfortable We didn't want him to pass away at home. That was my personal preference, just because I don't think I could have handled it. They're like, well, we can, you know, set him up in your house. We can bring in a hospital bed so he's comfortable. And then, you know, when it starts to get to the point where he's declining significantly, we can move him into our center. We're like, okay, sounds good. And so they set up the hospital bed and we, you know, telling your parents or going into hospice, it's the worst thing. I feel like every part of my GBM experience just gets worse and worse. Like it all just is, that's why I really don't want to, you know, I didn't really want to do this episode. Like I did, it's important to do it, but it's challenging to, you know, relive all of this stuff for sure. As we put him into hospice and we have the lady come over and she's like, well, I'm happy. She was kind of like a social worker care person. So she's like, I'm happy to like help him explain what, what's, what's going on. And so we didn't really say it was hospice. We sort of said that it's a home health care program. They're going to make him really comfortable and just set everything up. And also keep in mind, he hadn't done any treatment. There was no chemo that was done. There was no infusions of anything. There was no Optune. Like by the time that we had decided as a family that he could start it, it just wasn't going to happen at that point. It was extremely financially difficult. It was extremely expensive. 
And the doctors were just like, not that it was like on the back burner of everyone's mind, but it just like, it didn't happen quick enough. And then at the point where it was able to happen, it just didn't. Again, you're looking at a really short timeline with that. Fast forward, we put him into the home health thing at home and they set everything up and I go to New York. But prior to going to New York, I had a sit down talk with him and I wrote this thing for him. And I sort of said my goodbyes in a way. But I was like, hey, dad, like promise me you're going to wait until I get back. I was like, you know, like I'll be back in a couple of days. I'm going to visit like grandma and grandpa. Like we're going to do the Jewish holiday. And I sat him down and I guess I should read it since we're going there today. I sat next to his bed. And at this point, he like really wasn't showing any emotion. He was barely speaking at this point. He was really in sleep for, I'd say, 22 hours of the day. But I held his hand and I was like, dad, if you can hear me, squeeze my hand. And he squeezed my hand. I was like, okay, so at least brain is still working. And I was like, dad, I've been thinking about what to say to you, but it's still hard for me to find the words. Who would have thought that this could have happened to the healthiest gluten-free king alive? I'm still in shock. They say this disease gets every three in 100,000 people. So that must mean you're incredibly special to have attracted it. Life comes with twists and turns. And if there's anything you've ever taught me, it's how to be strong and resilient and fight, which I know is what you've been doing. I know this isn't the outcome we ever expected, but look at all the incredible things that have happened to us over the years. I've gotten to see you help so many patients, make new friends in every elevator you've walked in, grow your business from the ground up, love mom endlessly and unconditionally with your full support behind her no matter what. You've gotten to see me grow from a child to a woman, graduate college, which I know was your biggest dream for me, teach me how to drive a car, which we know would have been a mess if mom had tried, fall in love, travel the world, and build a career for myself regardless of how confused about it I may be. You've been there for me through every milestone, every heartbreak, every bad day, every stomach issue, and I know you will always be with me every day for the rest of my life. My heart aches that this could happen to the kindest, most gentle human. However, we are all a team and we will fight on your side always and forever, no matter what. I'm so thankful and so blessed to have been raised by such an incredible man. And I hope one day to be lucky enough to end up with someone that's even half of the man that you are. I love you endlessly until my last dying breath. And I promise to live every day to the fullest and make you proud. Love always, your little girl. And at that moment, my dad grabbed my hand really strong and he like made this like sobbing noise. And that was the last emotion my dad had ever showed. And so I felt really happy that we had that moment. And then I went to New York and I was like, you know what? I was like, dad, just wait for me. I'll be back in a few days. Just please wait for me. And so I flew to New York and I remember the hospice center called me and they're like, hey, you know, just removing your dad the next day. He's not doing so great. I was like, okay, like sounds good. And I remember I went to a concert and the hospice center called me again. And they're like, because I was the decision maker because we agreed that my mom wouldn't be the decision maker in this. We had an agreement within our family. So this was my job, which was, again, as a 22 year old, it really was just so hard. And so they called me. And they were like, do you want us to give your dad water? And I was like, what do you mean? They're like, he stopped drinking. Once you stop drinking, it's only a matter of days. 
do you want us to put him on oxygen? And do you want us to give him an IV? And my dad and I had this agreement that from when I was a kid, we visited one of my grandparents in a nursing home. And so I remember we were in this nursing home once and it just smelled like absolute piss. And we were just like looking at each other, like so disgusted. I might've been like nine or 10 years old at the time. And he was like, Amber, if I ever am in a place where I'm peeing on myself, if I'm just not myself, like if I'm a vegetable, he's like, cut me off. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, just tell the doctors to give me a pill. And he's like, he's like, I'll give you two winks. And he like winked with his right eye and the left eye. And he's like, just do it. And I'm like, oh God. And I don't know if he remembered that conversation, but that's like stuck with me for my entire life. And so when they said this, they're like, what do you want to do about your dad? I was like, no, don't give him water. I think about that all the time. And that was a really challenging decision that I had to make. And I feel like absolute garbage for making that call. But I know it's what he would have wanted. I feel like I just cut my parent off from life. Fuck brain cancer, honestly. They took him off of that. They kept him on oxygen. I was like, he needs oxygen. But they didn't give him any water. At this point, my mom was going to the center every single day for a couple of hours. And she was sitting there. And I was still in New York, April 3rd, 2018. And it's like 1 o'clock in the afternoon. My mom's like, hey, I just got to the the center. You know, your dad's like fingertips are pretty blue. He's breathing really heavy. Like, I feel like, you know, it's going to be another day or two. Like, come with me to the center tomorrow. I think we're going to have to say goodbye. And I was like, Okay. And she's like, I'm going to be here for the next couple hours. And then, you know, fast forward to like 3.30. She calls me. She's like, hey, I just left the center. We'll go back tomorrow once you land tonight. I was supposed to leave to the airport at like 4.15 and then take the flight home. Fast forward like 20 minutes. It's 3.45. I get a call from the hospice center. And they're like, we're so sorry to let you know. Like your dad passed away. And I'm like, what do you mean my dad passed away? They're like, yeah, no, he's not here anymore. Like he passed away like two minutes ago we're so sorry to call you and let you know. And I could just like, obviously that's just a horrible shock in itself. Even though you know it's coming, you're like, you're waiting for it any day. But I think just the idea that like he wasn't even there anymore was horrible. And so I call my mom and she was super upset because like he waited until she left and there's some science or I don't know, I don't know if it's science or it's just speculation or commentary around that when people are dying, they choose when they want to pass away. And so I wholeheartedly believe that my dad had waited until she left the room and purposely waited before I got back because I don't think he wanted anyone to be with him. But yeah, so that's my whole story about my dad. There's other bits and details, but I'd say this is the overall story. So after he passed away, I was obviously super distraught and trying to process everything that happened. And so I was a really big fan of just hopping on planes and escaping problems for a good portion of my life, which I'm thankfully... I've matured now. We've gone to therapy and we're doing good. Go on vacation for fun, not for escape. But no, we're good about that now. But anyways, and so I had gone to Asia and I was traveling and my mom was home with the dog and, you know, she was continuing her life and, you know, doing her thing. And I was just thinking, I was like, this was just the absolute worst year of my life. And I want no one to ever have to deal with this. And so I started looking into a lot of other nonprofit organizations. There were maybe three at the time that were in existence, I want to say. Honestly, maybe even two. Like, it was really, really sparse. And I was like, well, I want to make a difference. I want to get involved. I don't have a job right now. I don't know what to do. I need to do something. Like, you know, again, problem solver. Like, you want something, get it done. Like, let's go. I reached out to a bunch of different nonprofits. And no one got back to me. 
And so I was sort of thinking, I was like, if you want something done right, like you should do it yourself. And so I started the nonprofit. I had an incredible team that had helped me launch it. But overall, it was basically, it was my idea. I was working on it for 50 plus hours per week. And I was like, we have to build what I didn't have. I was like, the entire goal of the nonprofit was to build exactly what I was missing, which was community, an information source, a place to turn to as soon as you hear about a diagnosis, like a place with facts and statistics and things that are easy to understand, like what is some common terminology, like everything you see on our website, gbmresearch.org, and everything you see on our social medias, which is at glioblastoma research, is an exact effort to provide to everyone listening exactly what I did not have. I didn't have a place to turn. I didn't have a place to share my story. I didn't really want to share my story, but I didn't have a place to even if I wanted to. I had nothing. You're Googling what is glioblastoma, and it's like, glioblastoma is the worst deadly brain cancer, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, oh, like this is great. Like, you know, learning so much here. Overall, it was really an effort to build what I didn't have and in hopes that I'd be able to help people in the future, whether that was with the community, with the information, and just overall support and anything that we could do. And so the goal of the nonprofit was always to be research focused. And no, I'm not a doctor. I do not conduct research. And no, our organization itself does not conduct research. What we do is we fund research at top cancer centers being conducted by doctors, researchers, and medical professionals. Because in my mind, as I've said a lot before, is that I don't see how you can ever come to a place where you want to find a cure, where you can find a cure if research is not being funded. Because no matter what clinical trials are conceptualized, no matter what different projects and drugs are developed, you need research to get to a place where these things are thought of, where things are coming into existence. And so that was a really big emphasis for me. And so all the money that the organization donates is towards research projects and research trials. And so I was really proud of that. I'm super proud of what we've built. There's so many places that I want to take the organization, which I'm so incredibly excited about. The next project we're actually launching is going to be a pediatrics project. We're still working out the details of that. We're hopefully partnering with another really great nonprofit and doing a collaborative grant. So there's a lot of really exciting things in the works. There's so many places I want this to go. My goal is to make brain cancer as aware in society as breast cancer is. And that's the plan. And there are so many other initiatives, but I also like to keep things fun, which is why I think if I don't want people to be thrown off like by my like very sarcastic, obviously in this episode, I was crying. So welcome to Amber's life. But I'm a casual person. I'm in my 20s. And so it's not appropriate, I think, for me to be running a nonprofit that is so incredibly opposite of who I am as a person. I'm fun. I'm young. I'm innovative. I'm creative. And everything that I am, I try to put into the nonprofit because I don't want us to be someone that we're not. And I want us to be relatable, which is why I think we've been able to do all these really great things. Like we have this incredible podcast. We have a really huge social media platform that grows by hundreds of people every single day. I mean, we're doing so much. And it's just so crazy to think that everything that I built was not around four years ago when I went through all of this. It's a continuous effort, which again, I don't want to be misconstrued by like, you know, making brain cancer light, but it's making it relatable. We create initiatives that are easy to interact with, that make people want to share their stories, like our Warrior Wednesday or our Warrior Wall. They're all things that we do that are innovative to 
I don't want to say keep it exciting, but to be unique, to move the needle forward, whether that's even an awareness perspective, which again, the more awareness we have, the more funds we raise and the more research we fund, right? So it's really just all an effort to make everyone feel like they're a part of this family. Because unfortunately, it's like, you know, you don't choose your parents. Unfortunately, glioblastoma, you don't choose that family either. But we're all here. It's not ideal for anyone, but we're all here together. And the way you get through these things is by being together with support. And so I think what the organization really stands for is that we are this community. We are this family. We do things to make people feel like they can come together. And so as we continue to expand in the future, the goal is to create, you know, we're working on launching new committees. Hopefully, you know, I think after sharing this, we'll do a season two of the podcast. And there's so many exciting things coming that I think is so needed in the world of brain cancer awareness that I'm really excited to continue this project. I've definitely been really burnt out for the last few weeks. I think it's just a lot of death is very hard. It's hard for anyone, especially when you're going through it. But as I read all these stories and I'm like, wait, Amber, like, you can't get burnt out. Like you're doing things to help people. But then I kind of have to like check myself and be like, okay, well, you're a person. But then, you know, two days later, I'm like, wait, you can't get burnt out because we have to help people. Well, as we scale the nonprofit, it'll begin to get to a place where it's a bigger team and we're continuing to help people without taking breaks. And I'm super excited for the future. And I think there's so much potential to continue raising awareness and hopefully to find a cure as we continue to become bigger and larger. And also, I think it's really important to note that. But I think that there are so many things in my life that I feel have been able to lead me to this place where I've created what I've created. And I think that it's been able to help a lot of people. As a kid, I was a ballet dancer and every single day you're told, like, you're not good enough. Like, you knee straight, like, back straight. Just everything about what you're doing is not good. It's like, do it again, do it again, do it again. hundred times till you're, like, exhausted. Like, do it again. And then also I had my dad, who was really, really tough on me, where he'd be like, oh, you got a 70 in school? Like, 80. Like, do better. Do better. You're not doing this? Like, do better. Oh, like, you're tired? You need to do more. And so a lot of my life has been spent around people a lot of people in my early life were, I was always told that nothing is good enough. And I think that's something really challenging to get over. But I think in relation to a nonprofit for brain cancer research, it's like, that's a really good thing. Nothing we do is ever going to be good enough, which is why I want to do it more and more and more until we find a cure for brain cancer eventually. To me, this is necessary. This is something that we need in society. This nonprofit changes people's lives. Everything I do every day when I'm working on this is to make this better for someone else, is to help someone, is to provide insight for someone. It's so literally no one feels the way that I did four years ago. And so as I was saying, it's never going to be good enough. No matter what I do for the nonprofit, like, again, I'm super proud of what we built and I'm thrilled every single person that's helped me on all of my different teams. I'm so thankful for them, but it's never going to be enough. Nothing we ever do is going to be good enough until we find a cure. And so, you know, with that, I'll leave it at this. I'm so excited to continue doing all of this work to hopefully continue impacting all of you. 
to hopefully be making a difference in someone's life. I hope you enjoyed listening to my story, listening to me cry. It doesn't happen that often. Happened in episode two with Laura Jill. (laughs) But I'm excited. And I think there's a lot of really great places that we're going to go. And I think as we continue to work on finding a cure, we'll get to better places. We're going to continue doing everything that we do to create these exciting campaigns, to bring more people together, to create more awareness, and hopefully launch a lot of new initiatives over the next coming years. Thank you all again for listening to the podcast for season one. It's been super successful. I've been like watching the numbers grow every week, and it's just very exciting for me to see. But also thank you everyone for interacting with us, for those who have shared their stories. Thank you. Like this was so hard for me. So thank you. Like really, because without everyone else sharing their stories, I don't think I would have been able to. Thank you, whether, you know, you're a patient, a caregiver, you're all heard, you're loved, you're supported. Our organization, we have a place for you no matter what part of this journey you're in. And just thank you all from the bottom of my heart for being a part of our community. And we will see you next season on glioblastoma, aka GBM. And again, if you have any questions, you can email us at contact at gbmresearch.org. You can visit us online at gbmresearch.org or any social media platform, which is at glioblastoma research. Would love to hear any comments, feedback, questions. And yeah, we'll see you next time. That's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for tuning in again to another episode of glioblastoma, aka GBM. To get in touch with our organization, visit us online at gbmresearch.org or visit us on Instagram or Facebook at glioblastoma research. Visit us on Twitter at glioblastoma.org or visit us on LinkedIn at glioblastoma research organization. To make a donation to the organization, which is fully tax deductible, visit us online at gbmresearch.org where you can designate your donation in honor of someone or find other methods that you can make a donation with. Thank you again for supporting us, for supporting the show, and we'll see you next week.